Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. Today's guest is Australian survivalist Kai Furneaux. In addition to being a world-class survival expert, Kai is an outdoor guide, TV host, and stunt person who has appeared in over 100 films and television productions. In our discussion, we talk about resilience and how Kai has endured some of the most physically and mentally grueling outdoor challenges. During a solo survival trip in the Amazon, Kai managed to live on just 1,000 total calories over the course of 21 days while burning more than 40,000. We also talk about why she chooses to push herself into extraordinarily difficult situations when a life of comfort is available to her. We close the interview with Kai's advice for those of us who want to become more resilient. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Kai, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. It's great to be here. As you know, we are doing a season of 12 Geniuses on the topic of resilience, and this is probably a topic near and dear to your heart. How do you define resilience? I mean, I feel like resilience is just the ability to be adaptable under uncomfortable circumstances, I think, probably. Well, that's pretty easy. (laughs) (laughs) You've gotten very adept at that. So tell us, tell us what you do professionally. Professionally, I am a a person with many hats, but mainly I was a stunt performer, a survivalist, survival expert author and motivational speaker, probably sums up most of my careers. So you've been in movies, you've been on television, you do these insane challenges. And so so let's start with just talk about some of the challenges, survivalist challenges that you've done over the course of your career. Well, I think my biggest challenge was sort of surviving a car accident at 19 (laughs) and breaking a, a, a bone in my back and being told I'd never be physically active again. But then I just got into the outdoors as a way of rehabbing that. And at first it was, you know, your everyday outdoor experiences where I went out with tents and equipment. But over time, I started leaving more and more things behind until eventually I decided to hike across the Sierra Nevadas there in California with a friend. And we decided to try and do 100 miles just living off the land. So we took camera gear, but only a pocket knife as our tool and headed off and it took 10 days and I got to the other side of it way skinnier and I'd learned a lot about what I didn't know and I, I learned a lot about what my strengths were mentally. That was probably the first extreme survival challenge I did and since then I've done four sort of make it out of phrase. I've raced a survival expert called Ed Stafford out of the high altitude Tibetan plateau mountains in China survival style. And I've lived off grid and off the land in a stone cottage in the Australian outback for seven months. Doing the types of challenges that you've done, particularly some of these extreme outdoor challenges, you have to be really, really competent. How did you build your competence over the course of the years in order to enable you to to do these things? Well, I always say to people, like, I've, I've put my body to the test so that you don't have to. So I really learned this by doing. You know, I mean, if you look at way back when I was a little four-year-old in the outback, you know, we would, all the kids would gather their bikes together and little bike trailers and we would all just 
get two on a bicycle and, and wheel out into the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, you'd have to turn around and come back at the end of the day. And there was no choice, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, your parents, there's no cell phone, so no one's going to come and pick you up. You just have to go from where you are to where you started regardless. And it didn't matter if you were tired or too young or hungry or whatever, you just had to do it. So I feel like my training began at a very young age with that. And then I just sort of worked into it. You know, I'm, I'm always curious to see what the body can endure. You know, I mean, at 19, I was told I wouldn't be physically active again. And it was this big, massive limitation that someone tried to just dump on me for the rest of my life. And the, one of the reasons I speak out is because I meet people who have had the same accident and they have taken that as gospel and they haven't done anything physically active for the rest of their life. So I think a lot of my drive comes from being like, well, okay, I mean, how far can I go then? So you were 19 and there was a car accident. And can you describe what happened in the car accident? And you were told that you would not be mobile. But what specifically did the doctors mean when they said that? I just had a chip fractured off the outside of L3 vertebra. And in those days, any spinal damage, regardless of whether it was the spinal cord or the bone itself, was just treated the same way. And so they immobilized you. I was in hospital, flat on my back for three weeks and then at home in bed for three months with a brace if I moved. And then I wore the brace for another six months after that. And the interesting thing for me was, you know, now they've had such great advancements in medicine that they don't treat that injury that way. You know, as soon as you have that, they get you moving as soon as you can because it is just a broken bone. It is just on the outside. There's no chance of spinal cord damage. So intuitively, I did what doctors, what, 30 years later are now doing with patients for that injury. And what the doctors were telling you was kind of setting or would have set the mindset of most patients. But it sounds like you overcame that. So what were you telling yourself, you know, directly after that injury that countered what they were saying? Well, my parents have always said I was pretty stubborn. And I think like the main thing is I never really liked people telling me no. You know, I mean, and, you know, I, I guess I was just one of those kids that if I was told no, I'd be like, well, I'll show you and I'll do it, you know. And I think that sort of just carried into this injury at 19. I just thought, nah, that just sounds awful. I said that was like as simple as that. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to let that be my life. And I was very, very fortunate. My parents, they just said to me, you know, if you stay positive, it can be mind over matter and you can achieve anything you want to achieve. And I just felt like I could do more than they were saying I could do. How long was it before you were 100% again? So the accident happens at 19. Was it within a year? Was it? A longer time period? Probably three years before I fully trusted my body again. But that is the problem is the immobilization then causes atrophy of the muscle and then your body forgets how to, and then you're so protective of the area that the body forgets how to move properly. So, I mean, I would say it was three years before I was 100% and felt like I could do anything. But at about a year, I mean, 
I had a friend who was a rock climbing instructor and he was the one that sort of really got me moving. And he said, you know, I'll keep the rope tight. It's like rock climbing is amazing for your back and every muscle in your body. And probably after about a year, I started rock climbing and that was my biggest form of rehab. You said you were on Naked and Afraid, this television series that I learned about you on four times. Is that correct? Yes. Can you describe the four different appearances? So way, way back, like 10 years ago now, Discovery reached out to me with a new concept that hadn't been done before. And, you know, I mean, I'm all, I love survival. It's the thing I'm good at and passionate about. And they were offering me a chance to to test myself in the realm that I love the most. And nobody had ever heard of the show. And they were like, stay with us. It's called Naked and Afraid. And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> I, am, I am not going naked on television. And they're like, it's pixelated. And I'm like, yeah, but you're all there. You know, like, it, it, like I'm not a nudist. I'm not particularly like anyone to lay around naked at my house. You know, I'm not that person. So then I thought about it. Um, and my dream had always been, even as a kid, to be stranded on a deserted island like with Stanley Robinson. You know, so that was when everyone was sort of playing with dolls or trucks or anything. I was like making shelters and thinking like, oh man, like what would I do to make a cup or what would my chair look like? And so I thought, well, this is a chance, you know, you know, and then you'd hope that they're not going to let you die out there. I mean, there's circumstances, wild animals, things can happen, but generally you have a production crew who in its best interest to make sure that you get out alive. And what a way to be able to, to do this ultimate dream of mine, you know, and I did have these amazing pictures of me being stranded on a tropical island, and, you know, fruit trees and everything. And then I was the sixth one to be filmed of the, of the first season. So the finale of the first season. And just like a few days before I was going in, the adverts started coming out and there was these beautiful girls on white sandy beaches and turquoise water and like fishing. And I was like, this was it. And then they said, we're Kai, we're sending you to the Louisiana Club. <laughs> and I was just like, why? So most people, if you ask them what was the worst location ever, like they've filmed probably 200 episodes now. It's Discovery's top TV show worldwide. And most people will say that Louisiana Stump episode was probably one of the worst they've seen. The bug, we got rained out. We had no dry land for nine days. And I got off and I was like, hi, I'm never doing that again. Like, never. And then a couple of years later, they were like, oh, we're doing one with sharks. <laughs> and I love sharks. So I was just like, and then, you know, because I knew that most people were scared of sharks and I felt like it was really important to have someone on the show that loved sharks. So I went and did the shark one and then I'm like, God, now I am never doing that again. Like, I need to do it again. And then they're like, we're putting people out by themselves. And that was my dream, you know, like I'm, I'm a, a person, I really love my own company. And the um, producer was like, I promised you, I'll put you in a location where there's no bugs because... The two locations that I'd had were just filled with bugs. And I was like, fantastic. And then like a week before, she's like, we're sending you to the Amazon in wet season. <laughs> so bugs then, lots of bugs. And then after that, 21 days, I was like, 
oh, I feel like I'm done now. You know, I've proved everything I've ever needed to prove to myself. I feel good about it. That's my last one. And then they were like, we're doing a frozen episode in the cold. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I do love the unusual ones and I love the ones that nobody's done before. And I love the, uh, you know, and cold was probably one of the only environments that I felt like I hadn't conquered on um, on Naked and Afraid. So that was the last one I did was in Montana in winter. And were you naked in that one? Yeah. So they gave us furs at like one fur at oh the gosh. and a few scraps like a few bits of scrap at the camp itself but we had to take off all our clothes like about two k's from the camp and make it and it was probably a big with the wind chill it was about minus 15 and we had to get from there to the furs and then like the furs because I'm so tall like everyone else in my group was short and the fur came down to their knees but the fur didn't even cover my butt. <laughs> that's because that's so tall. So, you know, you really, your arms are out, your legs, I mean, for me, my legs and butt were out, your head bare, you know, your head. So, yes, you've got a fur, but, you know, it's still, a, it's still a huge challenge. I wanted to ask you, as you were preparing to be 21 days alone in Ecuador, in the Amazon, how did you prepare for that? I mean, my mental preparation all comes about just getting into a survival mindset, you know. So I just start spending more time alone. I I just start looking at my environment around me, even if I'm the city, in the city as far as food, fire, water and shelter. Your resilience just comes down to me to basic, like wants versus needs. And can you define the difference and can you ignore your wants and focus on your needs. I mean, that that's true resilience in a survival situation for me. You burned 44,000 calories during the three-week period and you consumed 1,000 calories. And then I went to your website and on your website you say, you can go without food for 21 days, but after a day, your mind starts playing tricks on you and, and telling you something else. So how were you preparing physically for that? And did you have this expectation that I'm only going to consume a thousand calories or a few thousand calories or, you know, what, how did you prepare physically? I think I prepared by doing two challenges before that, you know, I think that's probably the hardest thing for most people is the fear of what your body is doing in response to the situation that, that causes panic, you know, so I prepared for the Amazon by knowing what the process is and it takes the fear out of it. But I also prepare for everything by having no expectations and then anything's a bonus. Now, I don't know if you have heard about the experiment they did with rats like a couple of years ago. They put a couple of rats in a bucket of water and the rats swam and swam and swam and the rats drowned and they pulled them out, brought them back to life again. They, they swam for 20 minutes until they sunk. And they pulled them out, they resuscitated them, dried them off, gave them some food and water, put them back in the bucket. And those rats then swam for 23 hours before they stopped swimming the second time. And they say the only difference is hope because the rats were then expecting to be rescued. And I think, I think hope is such a big thing out there. So when you give up hope, then all is lost. But if you go in expecting bananas, coconuts, and mangoes, then you're going to lose hope pretty quickly when you can't find those things. 
I wonder if you have a spiritual purpose and how does that factor into your resilience? I'm fairly spiritual. Like I think energy attracts energy and, and animals and nature in particular respond to energy. I mean, I can't prevent the storm and I can choose how I deal with the storm when it's there, whether I enjoy it or hate it. You know, like I always, I do motivational speaking with kids and I'm like, you know what, there's times in life where you've got to go from point A to point B and that is inevitable. The point A might be the start of the 21 days and the point B might be the end of the 21 days. And the only person that can sort of control this bit in the middle and how you feel about it is yourself. So, you know, you can have two people sitting out there and one person's hating it and one person's loving it. And the only difference is the one person's looking for things to hate and the other person's looking for things to like. So, you know, I mean, that sort of mindset really does help me, I think. Like, what's your why for doing it? Because if it's to prove something to someone else, you're not going to get through. You know, that is not a good enough thing. If it's the money, that's not enough. That's not enough, you know, like you have to have a really strong why when you're sitting there in the middle of the night, starving, freezing, getting eaten alive, you know, not knowing what you're going to be able to do the next day, the rain's pouring in your shelter and you want to have a really strong why to not be calling up those producers and saying, I'm out of here. Well, at the bottom of my page is why. And what is your why? Why did you do these things? Why do you do these things? I do it for a couple of reasons. One of them is to find my limitations. I've never got to the point where I've fallen down and haven't got back up again. And to me, that's extraordinary. Like what an amazing machine we have here, you know, with the combination of the mind and body. Like every time I do something, I'm like, but she tutors me that, you know, like that holds you back. How do they get away with that? You know, like. I, and I and do think a lot of the times when we fall down and can't get back up again, it's not a matter of physicality. It's a matter of this. So, I mean, if you have seen the Amazon episode, like I am done day 20, you know, like I, my hands are shredded, I'm so skinny, I'm, I've survived on a handful of grubs and two tiny fish and I'm just like, like, but insane curiosity like can I do one more chop of the machete on the wood well shoot I can can I do it one more I can you know and then I finally get the raft in the water on the on the last last day and they've made my extraction point be upstream so I can't stop and be going forward I go backwards I'd just go, well, can I do, and I couldn't swim like this because of the way the raft was built. I had to use both hands at a time. And I was just like, can I do this one more time? Okay, I can. Can I do this one more time? All right, I did. You know, so in my head, I would just count to 100 and then count to 100 again. And I was so surprised because every time I thought I couldn't go on anymore, I could put one foot in front of the other. I could do one more stroke. So, you know, I feel like quite often, we just give up before the potential of our bodies do. I mean, I am not extraordinary. Like, I am not one of those people that you go like, oh, she was the born athlete. You know, like, I I was winning the trophies for the, like, most improved person that gave the best job on court. <laughs> you know, it was like, good effort, well done. Just like the first trophy I won was actually the World Tourist Stunt Award when I was, like, 38 or something. You know, like, you... I, I just wasn't the athlete or the winner or the the person that 
stood out in any way, shape or form. In fact, like I even won an award when, you know, kids do those horrible awards in graduation for the one person in the whole school least likely to go anywhere in life. You know, like it was like, if I can do it, anybody can do it, but you just have to get to a stage where you're like, can I do it? Oh yeah, I can. You know, it's, it, yeah, it's, extraordinary what we're capable of and how we limit ourselves with our belief system. You've said one thing that I think is really, really important. I've heard over and over is like, if you have a mile to go, your job is not to go that mile. Your job is to go the next step. And the the other thing that I have heard is uh, through different survivalists and, you know, people who do these ridiculous things, which I think I don't know that I'm capable of doing what you do. I, that's why I admire what you do. You are. But, anybody um, is. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, your mind gives out at the 40% mark before your body will give out. And so what that means is if, if your mind says stop doing push-ups at 40, your body actually can go to 100. You just have to overcome this messaging that your mind is saying. And once you start to learn that, you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm much more capable. And then you start to push through these messages that your mind is sending to you. So I, I find that to be really interesting. But you, you said, so the first thing you said about your why is, what can you do? But it sounded like there were some other whys that you have. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is like, I do, I mentor a lot of um people that are in really hard circumstances and there's the stuff that they are going through is real life stuff you know like real and raw and um you know and I sit there and I ask them to continue and to fight and to you know to keep moving forward and here I am I've put myself in this little like reality tv position and you know and it's really like it's just a it is just a TV show and, you know, like what I'm going through, you know, it's interesting you keep bringing up the prisoners of war because quite often I'll sit there and I'll be like, man, like some of those people ate sawdust for three years to get through, you know, like, and they got through and if they can get through and they are working in the mines every day and doing like horrifically amount of physical stuff and, and, you know, like, and just getting no food and if they can do it, then me just sitting out here going, oh, I'm just like laying in the woods, building a shelter, like then I can do it. But it's also, I feel like if, like who am I to ask these kids to fight through something if I'm not willing to fight through when it gets hard? So quite often that'll be my why, you know, like I've got a couple of ones that are pretty special to me and I just think like if she can do it. I can do it. You know, if she can fight through what she has to put up with, then me sitting out here is nothing compared to that. And I have to show her that I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is with this stuff. And that sort of is another big motivator for me. You know, when you have a buddy to go to the gym with you, you're more likely to show up at the gym. And so these, you don't want to let these people who you're working with you, you don't want to let them down. So that's that's uh, an important driver. No, and that does come back to the point where I started, where I was like, I really, really enjoy working with people out there. I went out alone. On my fourth one, I had the most amazing partner that you could ever wish for. And she showed me the benefit of having another person out there. 
So prior to that, I'm like, yeah, I just I don't want anyone. I just want to go alone on my challenges. But then having someone who was so amazing and so hardworking and so connected and and we had the same positive mindset and we had so much fun and most people that came back said it was their hardest challenge they've ever done and it, it was my easiest, you know? Like, really? Yeah, we were snowing and sleeting and raining and, you know, food was scarce and, mm. you know, most people were cold every night, but... Me and Gabby just had such an amazing time that we came in after, like at the end of the show, laughing, going, "Oh yeah, we were fine. We could have stayed out there forever." You know, it was a, it was almost a holiday for us both. And I attribute that to being with the right person out there as a partnership. I want to ask you about the most difficult, the most difficult part of these challenges, because I can tell you. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the woods and and doing different things like that. Nowhere were there dangerous animals like jaguars and caiman and and these types of animals. And and so, you know, that would have been looking at your episode in Ecuador, that would have been the most frightening thing for me. But you're Australian, you have all these dangerous and poisonous <laughs> and deadly snakes. And so what what was the most difficult or most difficult part of the challenges for you? So I have this idea in my head that it's not worth worrying about the things I cannot change. So if there's a big jaguar there, I can't change if the jaguar going to come and eat me. So why am I going to be scared of that? You know, like it's either going to happen or it's not. But if it's not happening at that moment, I just choose not to be scared of it. So it really is just this mindset, like, I was like, oh, there's a jaguar out. Like, it's the jaguar. It sounds like a jaguar. And I sort of went and I couldn't really see. And I'm like, ah, oh, well, you know, it probably won't come in because of my fire. And and big cats are um, like kittens, you know. They'll, they like to play with their prey. So if I'm not running, they're probably not chasing. And they sort of go, like, I'm like, yeah. But the hardest thing for me is probably the bug. You know, like it's the, it's the little things that are going to take you out as far as mentally, like that noise of mosquitoes. Like even now, if there's one mosquito in my bedroom, I'm like, wow, I'm going to find it, you know. So, and, and at dusk and dawn in particular, you just get this, they all come out of the treetops and down into you. Like, and, you know, people are always like, what about if you take yourself with mud? And I'm like, it doesn't work. And they're like, Green smoky leaves on the fire, and like it, and like everyone had, everybody has an idea based on false reality about something they think someone's told them it will work, but no one's tried that in years, and I can tell you it doesn't work. You know, so um, yeah, so the mosquitoes are the things that I find, and most people find you just have to be able to control your mind with. Because if you start letting it get to you, then you become overwhelmed really quickly. You know, I mean, in the Amazon, if I didn't have 10 things crawling on me at once, I'd be like, what's wrong here? You know, between the <laughs> ants, like ants, ticks, leeches, mosquitoes, just like little, there are little flying uh, native bees that like to suck on your sweat. And it was just, so you had to just be really zen with that. 
And I just had a rule, like if you've crawled on me for 10 seconds and haven't bit me, then you can stay. <laughs> but the second you start biting, then we're, we're like, we're going to do something about it. But, you know, like there's fire ants. So you step in a fire ant nest or you don't notice that you're standing in one and it's like electric, like electric shock going up and down your legs as you're trying to get rid of the fire ants. And there's like a bullet ant there that when it bites you, it feels like you've been shot. I haven't been shot, but this is what I've been told. Feel like you've been shot and then someone punched you in the, in the bullet hole, you know, like it is the... And I rolled over on one of those in the middle of the night and went from like dead sleep to like, yeah, it's just like, so I think it's more, you know, it's more the little things that are going to drive you insane rather than those, I mean, for me personally, rather than the big predators, like even in Frozen, like producers came because there were helicopters going over and over for a couple of nights and producers came to us and they're like, okay, so a man got killed by a grizzly bear four miles from here. They haven't caught the grizzly. We just want you to be extra specially safe. And I'm like, all right, went back to doing what I was doing, you know, like, okay, what am I going to do? Be scared about something that might or might not happen. I'm like, I just don't have time for that. Are people born resilient? Is it developed or a combo of both? I think it's developed. I believe that anyone can develop it, you know, and I do think that back in the day, people ask why Australians are so tough in general. And if you have a look at like white settlement of Australia, they came down expecting England and got the harshest of harsh conditions, you know, and the way they dealt with it was they learned to laugh in the face of really awful circumstances. And so there's that sort of psyche, but that wasn't born. And then now that conditions aren't as bad and, you know, we all have air conditioners that we can turn on and heated we can turn on. Like I feel like uh, we have developed a less resilient younger generation. But, I mean, I take out into the wilderness all the time and I can develop resilience in three days in someone. So, you know, it's just a matter of expectation versus reality versus um, circumstance. And a lot of resilience comes when people trust you with responsibility. You know, quite often these days I see parents don't allow kids to be in perceived danger. You know, and it doesn't, like, that's how we learn. You know, we went out on our little bikes and we built the bike jump and we went, boom, boom, and we went, manage that. But every time we stared down, when we made the jump a little bigger, we sort of got that heartbeat and we faced it and we did it anyway. You know, like, I always climbed to the top of the tallest trees. You know, and I was I scared when I got near the top? Sure, but I kept climbing, you know, like, and once I fell out from the top of the tree and Probably could have killed myself, but I didn't. So, like, we learn resilience by facing our fears and by getting a little bit uncomfortable. So, it's most definitely a, a skill that you can learn. But, you know, we love our comfort zone. You know, we like the fact that we don't have to get too hot, too cold. We can have coffee to wake up. But, you know, probably that's the, the biggest threat to society is this lack of willingness to get a little bit uncomfortable and, and and like, and get resilient that way. So let's end with this. If somebody wanted to get more resilient, what one or two pieces of advice would you give them? Firstly, I'd say just start pushing yourself a little bit further. So if you're on the, 
you know, if you're going for a walk and you do six Ks, do six and a half, do seven, like start trying to look at, at pushing your perceived limit slightly. You know, even if you're running on a running machine and you do a hundred extra steps, like just start pushing that a little bit. And the other way is get a little bit uncomfortable. And you can do that simply by putting your shower to cold for 30 seconds at the end of your shower. And not only does it have amazing health benefits as far as endorphins and serotonin releases and all that sort of thing, you are learning to just be a little bit uncomfortable so that when you're faced with a situation that you are cold but you can't change it for the moment, you don't induce that panic response, you know? Like, so I do cold plunges. I try and do it every day. And that's three to five minutes in icy cold water. And I do that so that if I get uncomfortable in any way, shape or form, my body's used to experiencing panic, ignoring it and knowing it's only temporary. So anyone can start taking cold showers. If you don't like a full cold shower, 30 seconds by the, at the end is enough to start to create this change for your ability to adapt. Now, even if it's not cold, Extreme heat, any discomfort can be trained by these cold shower things. Like, so I've been in 48 degrees plus when I'm trying to like help my cousin do his shearing and mustering. And I have an ability to ignore extreme heat as well due to my ability to accept extreme cold. So just a way of creating a little bit of discomfort in your life and maybe start driving a different way to work every now and then. You know, so you just, you just pop yourself out of your routine for a second, maybe turn the GPS off and see if you can get there without the GPS. But anything that gives you that little bit of anxiety for a second that you're sort of like, oh, and then you can just like go, it's actually, it's okay. Like, what does it matter if I take two minutes extra to get where I need to go without doing it with the GPS? So just to start putting a little bit of discomfort in your life, knowing it, it's going to be better for you in the long run. I did cold showers for the month of July. Yeah, how did last, it go? Last year. It, it was no problem, but it's very similar to how you were talking about uh, the 21 days. So the first few days were novel and, and okay. And then there's that kind of, you know, period in the middle where I'm not really enjoying this very much anymore. <laughs> and then you get to, you know, the 25th of July and you're like, oh, I got a week left. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to not do this now. And you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a process. And, but, but the other thing, you know, that you were talking about there is putting yourself in these uncomfortable situations, whether it's cold plunge or extreme heat. I think what it also does is it helps us appreciate the comforts that we do have and not take them for granted. Because if we just take a warm shower all of the time, you're not going to appreciate it as much as, you know, taking a week's worth of cold showers or whatever. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the secrets to life too, is, you know, figuring out ways to really appreciate these things that are taken for granted by most people. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I mean, I, I'm not like when I'm out on Naked and Afraid, I'm missing anything, but you certainly get back and you enjoy the things that you haven't had. You know, I mean, that's another of my secrets of getting through is not dwelling on the things you don't have and you can't change, you know. So I yeah. ban everybody from speaking about food, you know, because I'm not interested in focusing on on food because I can't get it, you know. So that's, 
that's sort of the same thing and it leads to this greater appreciation for sure. Kai, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will be back next week with world champion boxer Jamal Shango James, who talks about his approach to resilience while training, competing in the ring, and in life. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.